everybody. Um, our Bible reading this morning is taken from 1 Samuel 22 and um, verse 1 to 23. 1 Samuel 22, 1 to 23. David left God and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Herod. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul, spear in hand, was seated under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing around him. Saul said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me, as he does today. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were the priests of Nob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole father's family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, You turn and strike down the priests. 
So Doeb the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys and sheep. But Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. May God be pleased to bless the reading of his word and the preaching of it this morning. Brenda, thank you very much indeed. Good morning, everyone. Uh, do please keep your Bibles open at the passage Brenda has just read for us as we continue our studies in the life of David. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, it is our joy to, to worship you together and to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us, then to speak to us, then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit this passage will come alive to our hearts and minds this morning. And so we pray together, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. One of the more unhelpful ideas coming out of prosperity gospel churches is the belief that the normal experience of the Christian is that he or she lives on a mountain top with God. Uh, they tell us that a real Christian lives in such close communion with God that they're constantly full of joy. Uh, they have complete victory over sin. They've got extraordinary insight into God's plans and purposes, both for their own lives and for the lives of all their friends. Uh, like Moses, we're told that the real Christian lives most of their life on the mountaintop with God. But of course that's nonsense. Yes, God does give his people tremendous times of joy and encouragement and there's nothing more wonderful than discovering God's plans and purposes as he reveals them to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. But the truth is that much of the Christian life is spent not on a mountain, but in a cave. And you only need the most basic knowledge of Christian history to see that the Kingdom of God has often made its greatest progress, its greatest advances, 
through people who spent prolonged periods of their lives in some pretty dark caves. Some of you know the story of Corrie ten Boom. Uh, She spent some years in a Nazi concentration camp. She saw her family wiped out. She suffered many, many sadnesses, but God used her to win thousands of people for Jesus all the way around the world. Or what about Joni Erickson? Uh, As a teenager, she was paralysed from the neck down in a diving accident, but she's also had a phenomenal global ministry. And uh, through her very joyful witness, she's led countless people to the Lord. Now, if you were to ask these ladies where the power in their ministry came from, they would tell you that they found it not on a mountain of joy, but in a cave of unexpected suffering. So, friends, I think we need to accept, don't we, that caves are places where God is at work. But having said that, when we find ourselves in a cave of suffering or adversity or difficulty, how are we to understand it? How are we to think about it? Well, as we continue our study in the life of David, I think in this chapter we discover three important truths about caves that will help us to see their purpose and will show us how to profit from them. First of all, a cave is a place of separation because if we're going to be effective in our Christian life and witness, we, we have to be separated from anything in our lives that's got a higher priority than God. Second, a cave is a place of prayer because in a cave we learn a deeper dependency on God and we learn to pray differently. And third, a cave is a place of renewal. Because when we come out of a cave, we're never quite the same as we were when we went in. And we find that God starts using us in ways that he didn't use us before. Let's look at these three things a little more closely in the life of David. First, a cave of unexpected suffering or difficulty is a place of separation. Now I think we're meant to be surprised by David's difficult circumstances at this point in the book. Uh, In our very first study, you remember, we saw that God had commanded Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel. And by way of confirmation... The Spirit of the Lord had come upon David in power. And David went on to win that miraculous and spectacular victory over Goliath and the Philistine army. So overnight, he became the nation's hero. He's loved by everybody, including Saul's son, Jonathan. So I think at this point we would probably be expecting a press conference. A press conference confirming the arrangements for David's coronation. But instead, Saul is out to kill him. 
David is a fugitive running in fear of his life and he's hiding in a cave. So I think the question that naturally comes into our minds at this point in the book is, well, has God's plan failed? Uh, That's a question people often ask, isn't it? They look at the, the suffering of innocent people and they say, well, that just goes to show, doesn't it, God is not in control. You can't really trust him. But you see, the careful reader of 1 Samuel knows that the theme of this book is that where the things of God are concerned, we must not judge by appearances. That's true, of course, about people spiritually. Uh, We can never tell where another person stands in relation to God just by looking at them. And it's also true about their circumstances. A person might be going through the most terrible, appalling suffering. But that doesn't mean God's forgotten them. It doesn't mean that God is not using them or going to use them. Because the Lord does not look at the thing man looks at. And there are two important clues in the text that show us that in spite of appearances, God is still very much in control of David's life. The first clue is back in chapter 20, verse 22. You might like to just page back and put your nose on that verse. uh, Where Jonathan is telling David how he's going to signal Saul's intentions towards him. David, you remember, was to hide behind a rock. Jonathan would come out and he would shoot a few arrows at a target. And then he would give his servant instructions in a loud voice, loud enough for David to hear. And in verse 22, Jonathan says to David, if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because, here's the punchline, the Lord has sent you away. Therefore, you see, the reason that David is on the run, the reason that he's hiding in a cave, is because the Lord has arranged it. It's not an accident. So however strange it might seem to us, it is actually a part of God's plan for David. The second clue that God is in control of David's life in these difficult circumstances is in chapter 22, verse 1, our passage this morning. Now we're told there that David's brothers and his father's household have come to David in the cave. Now presumably that means they're not safe from Saul either. And then in verse 3, we find David doing something very odd indeed. It's so strange that we have to rub our eyes and read verse 3 again to make sure we haven't got it wrong. But there it is in verse 3. From there... David went to Mitzpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. Now that's really odd. It's really odd because Moab were Israel's enemies. I mean, why on earth would David put his family 
into the care of Israel's enemy. Well, about a hundred years before this, a young woman from Moab had shown extraordinary love and kindness to her Israelite mother-in-law. The name of this Moabite woman was Ruth, and God so arranged matters that Ruth married an Israelite called Boaz. Ruth has got a book of the Bible named after her, and in the closing verses of that book we're told quite clearly that she became David's great-grandmother. Isn't that interesting? More than a hundred years before 1 Samuel 22, more than a hundred years before David went to see the king of Moab, God prepared the way to ensure that David's family would be safe in this new crisis. So you see, in spite of appearances, God is still very much in control of David's life at this particular point. Now, if that is true, what is the purpose of all of this suffering in the life of David? If God does have a purpose for him, what on earth is it? What's so striking, I think, about David in the cave is that God has separated David from everything except God. Everything that David might have been tempted to depend on or rely on has been taken away. I mean, just think about it with me. David has been separated from his wife. He's been separated from his home. He's been separated from his career. He's, been, he's even been separated from his closest friend, Jonathan. And it's even worse than that because in chapter 21, which we haven't studied together, chapter 21 tells us that when David was hiding from Saul amongst the Philistines, he had to pretend to be insane in order to save his life. So you could say he's even been separated from his self-respect. Now, as I've said before on previous occasions, we have to be careful uh, not to pretend that we are the King Davids of the 21st century because we are not. Uh, David's got a, a unique role in God's salvation plan for the world that we don't share. But, what we do see here in the life of David is God separating him from everything which might have allowed people to assume that the successful reign that does eventually follow was somehow all about David rather than all about God. And the same, of course, is true for you and me. Because, listen to this, hear this, before we can come to the very beginning of what God has planned for you and me to do, we must first come to the end of ourselves and the end of everything else we might have been depending on apart from God. And if God has to put us in a cave in order to do it, that's what God will do. So the first purpose of a cave, I humbly suggest, is that it is a place of separation. 
But the second purpose of a cave is that it is also a place of prayer. Uh, So we've seen what God is doing in David's life. We've seen that. But I think what we really want to know at this point is what on earth was David thinking? How was he feeling about all these strange arrangements while he was in the cave? Well, we know that David wrote seven psalms at this particular point in his life. And at least two of them were written while he was in the cave. So if we want to know how David was was feeling, well, the psalms, the book of psalms, is the place to look. So keep a finger in 1 Samuel 22 and turn with me please to Psalm 142 Psalm 142 I'll wait till we're all there before we go any further Psalm 142 Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is the heading. You see, in other books of the Bible, we don't actually pay much attention to to the headings because they've been added by uh, the editor of the particular translation that we happen to be reading at a much, much later stage. They're not part of the original inspired text. But in the Psalms, the headings are part of the inspired text. And they often contain really important clues about the circumstances in which the psalm was written. And that's what we've got here. You'll notice that the heading says that this psalm is a mascal of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. So you see, here we have David recording for us the way that he prayed in the power of the Spirit while he was at this particularly low moment in his life. The word maskal comes from a Hebrew word meaning to impart wisdom. So this psalm teaches us the wise way to pray when you and I find ourselves in a cave in our own lives three things to learn. First, when we find ourselves in a cave, we are to be completely honest with God about our suffering. Verses 1 and 2, I think, make it extremely clear. Have a look at them with me. David says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my complaint before him Before him I tell my trouble. Now pause on that. Because, you see, some Christians never seem to do this. Either they imagine that God isn't particularly interested in their troubles, or they think they're being disciplined for something or other, and the appropriate thing to do is simply to suffer in silence. That is simply not true. Of course, sometimes God does discipline us for our good. But it's never true to say that God wants us to keep quiet about it. No, the response of faith 
in a loving Heavenly Father who is working all things for the good of those who love him is to be honest about our suffering, to pour out our complaints before him like a child would do with his father. Second, we are to cry to God for help. So look at David's plea in verses 5 and 6. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. There's something really rather interesting going on here. It's so obvious, it's actually quite easy to miss. But can you see that what David is doing here is he's handing over control of the entire situation to God. He's saying, Lord, I simply can't do this. This situation is utterly beyond me. Please won't you take over. Now I think this takes us to the heart of authentic Christian experience. Because actually, truth be told, you and I find it really hard to hand over control of our lives to God. We want to stay in control ourselves. But one writer puts it rather beautifully when he says, Caves crush us deeper into God. It's rather good, that, isn't it? Caves crush us deeper into God. They drive us into a deeper intimacy with him like nothing else can. And that's how we discover what it really means to be a child of God. And then the third lesson that David's psalm, I think, teaches us is that we are to pray expectantly. We are to pray expecting God's powerful intervention. In verse 7, do you see this? Verse 7 of the, the psalm, David says, Set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Now, of course, David wouldn't have been able to foresee exactly how God was going to do it, but he knows enough about God to anticipate God's deliverance and to, be absolutely, and to be absolutely confident about it. And he knows that instead of being alone and on the run, that a day is going to come when once again he's going to be surrounded by his friends. Now here's the point. In normal circumstances, most people do not pray like this. Because you see, when our lives are comfortable, we actually don't really pray as earnestly as this at all. We need a cave to crush us deeper into God so that we remember to pray like this because when life is calm and easy and successful, we quite simply forget. Indeed, later in his life, when David was secure on the throne, when all his enemies had been defeated, David did forget to pray. And his life began to unravel. We'll get to that later in the series. Very striking, in his commentary on the Psalms, 
Spurgeon, the Baptist minister, made this very telling comment. He said, David should have prayed more in the palace like he prayed in the cave. So our times in the cave teach us how to pray. So a cave is a place of separation. It is a place of believing prayer. And then lastly, it is a place of renewal. Come back to 1 Samuel 22. In chapter 22, it's important for us to see that the... This is really striking, actually, if you think about it. It's important to see that the writer is presenting two different kingdoms, two different worlds, side by side. So, on the one hand, there is Saul's kingdom. Saul is surrounded by people who are apparently hungry for the things that Saul has to offer. And just in case they've forgotten, Saul reminds them in verse 7. Saul said to his officials, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? In other words, what Saul is saying is, can David give you the prosperity and power that I can give you? No, he can't. So you see, Saul has actually been buying the support of his followers on the condition that they keep him on the throne and they help him destroy David. Now remember who David is. He's the Lord's anointed which if you cast your mind back to our first study means that he's the Messiah in a sense, the Christ. That's what the Lord's anointed is. In other words, the hallmark of Saul's kingdom is that it is explicitly anti-Christ. And that, of course, is confirmed, isn't it, later in the chapter by Saul's brutal slaughter of the priests of the Lord. I mean, that's how evil Saul's kingdom is. It's got the devil's fingerprints all over it. But on the other hand, there's David's kingdom. And David, very interesting this, isn't it? He's surrounded by people who are neither powerful nor wealthy. Quite the reverse, actually. Look again at verse 2. All those who were in distress, or in debt, or discontented, gathered around him, and he became their leader. The phrase in distress in verse 2 literally means under intense pressure. I suppose today we would say that these people were stressed out. The people who are in debt uh, are in the original language people who had many creditors. And again, if we bring that up to date, I suppose we would say that these are people who had bought into the materialist dream and maxed out on the credit cards and now they're in debt and facing ruin. And then there are the discontented in verse 2. Um, that's perhaps the strongest word in the group and it means 
It means having a bitter spirit. So these are people who've been so badly abused and mistreated that it has altered their entire outlook on life. So David, you see, is surrounded by people who really suffered in Saul's world and see no future in it. And what we're meant to notice is they've turned their back on it. They've made a definite and decisive move out of Saul's world and into David's world. So, get this clear in your mind, they were not in Saul's world during the week, Monday to Friday, and with David in the cave on the weekend. By going to David, they were identifying themselves publicly with him, which in that situation meant there was no way back. It was a complete and total commitment. And what does God do? Well, this very unlikely group of people actually become the nucleus of an army. It's not the army that perhaps you and I would have chosen for God's king, but it is the army that God has chosen for David. Which is why in verse 5, God sends a prophet to David who says, don't stay in the stronghold, go into the land of Judah. Why go into the land of Judah? Well, because Israel's king is going to rule from Judah. And as we read on in the story, we discover that this army of the most unlikely people go on to win some of the most important victories in Israel's history. And eventually, they secure the throne for David. And you see, the point for us this morning is that by turning their back on Saul and everything he stood for, and putting their trust in David as their leader, this motley group of individuals are transformed for the task of winning the kingdom. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? So can you see that for these hurting, broken, bitter people, the cave became a place of healing and renewal? And I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that that's how God works today. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus says that the kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit. It's for those who mourn. It's for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they can't find any in the world. So these are the people whose lives are turned round and who Jesus says will inherit the kingdom. And it raises two important questions for us to think about during the week. The first is... Okay, Simon, I hear what you're saying, but what makes this renewal possible? How can it be that the darkest experiences in the cave can actually transform us for useful service? Well, when Jesus was taken down from the cross, he was laid in a tomb. He was, if you like, placed in the very worst kind of cave, wasn't he? 
It was a place of ultimate separation from his father and separation from the glory that he had from before the foundation of the world. But Jesus came out of the cave. And because Jesus came out of the cave, and as we said earlier in the service, is risen and is ascended to heaven, we can know him. And we can follow him as our leader. And because he came out of the cave, we know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're going to be part of a new world where there will be no more caves. No more painful times of separation. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that releases us, doesn't it, to be effective and energetic in kingdom work while we wait. Now you see, that is the power that Corrie Ten Boom and Joni Erickson discovered. Can I ask you this morning, have you discovered it yet? Or are you still thinking of the caves in your life as signs that God has forgotten you? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Is verse 2 teaching us that the kingdom of God is closed to rich and powerful people? Because if you look at this text, if all we had was 1 Samuel 22, you would say, well, the rich and powerful people are with Saul. They're not with David. Can I say that is not the message of verse 2? Jesus never says that the kingdom of God is closed to rich and powerful people. But... Jesus does give plenty of warnings about worldly power and the love of riches. Now, why does he do that? Well, it's because wealth and power act rather like a painkiller that deadens the pain in our lives for a short period of time. But it's important for us to remember that that pain is also warning us about the danger of living our lives separated from God. And when we trust in these worldly painkillers, so to speak, it actually prevents us from coming to the Lord Jesus for healing and for forgiveness and for renewal. So I want to close this morning with a quotation from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, which I think explains the point rather better than I can, and I hope it will appear on the screen. There it is. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says this, It is one of the royal rules in medicine that pain should not be relieved until the cause of the pain has been discovered. The trouble with drugs is that by lessening the pain and easing the symptoms, they tend not only to hide the real cause of the disease, but also tend to keep people away from the true physician. As our Lord himself said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. By which he meant that those who imagine themselves to be whole and to be all right are always the last to accept salvation. End quote. Now, my friend, where are you this morning? Are you deadening the pain that's warning you of the danger of living apart from God? 
If you are, can I humbly suggest that it's time to stop doing that and to stop expecting those things, whatever they are, to give you what only the Lord Jesus Christ can give you. At the end of our passage this morning, uh, David is speaking to someone who's on the run from Saul. He, he needs to be rescued. He's in fear of his life. David says to him, you will be safe with me. And he was. And what David said to that man then, Jesus says to all of us this morning through the Gospel, you will be safe with me, but we might add, not with anyone or anything else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're sometimes so very slow to realise that our times of suffering, our times in the cave, are not mistakes, but seasons of renewal when you are powerfully at work in us, separating us from our false gods and shaping us for lives of useful and effective service. Thank you that Jesus has come out of the cave of death and that we have the sure and certain hope that one day he will return to bring in a new creation and that our eternal dwelling place will be with God Most High for he is and always will be our refuge and our fortress. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on that great and glorious day for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.